Hey everyone, it's Josh, and I've chosen for this week's SYSK Select our 2014 episode on the inappropriately named Collective Hysteria. It turns out that people can have a real effect on how other people feel and behave, so take this as a sign to be nice, and maybe even soothing to others. And while you're working on that, enjoy this super cool episode on some super weird psychology. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me, as always, is Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's over there to the left, and uh, that makes this Stuff You Should Know. Got the A-team yeah. in the hizzy. I call face. What? I'm, oh. I'm face. <laughs> well, of course you're face. Look at you. I would be a combination of uh, Murdoch and Mr. T, I think. Yeah. Well, your hair is kind of spiky in the middle today. Yeah. Jerry, I don't know what she'd be. Uh, I guess she'd be the leader. She'd be Hannibal. Oh, yeah. You know? She's smoking a cigar right now. And wearing a black glove. When did you start smoking <laughs> cigars, Jerry? That's weird. Very timely. I uh, said A-team. I don't want to slag off guest producer Noel. He's not exactly B-team. No. We'll just call ourselves the OGs. Okay. Now that we have that established, we are the OGs. <laughs> That's right. We need bowling shirts that say as much yeah. on the back. You feeling good? I'm feeling uh, nauseous and uh, dizzy. Oh, well, Chuck, did you happen to see somebody <laughs> else who is nauseous and dizzy? Well, Jerry was last week and then uh-huh. a few more people in the office, so yeah. I just figured we all had the same thing. All right, I'm going to diagnose this. Okay. It's called collective hysteria, <laughs> also known, I think... More appropriately, is mass psychogenic disorder. Yeah, I think when you add the word hysteria to this, it takes on certain dimensions that a lot of people could find very objectionable. Sure, you know, hysterics, hysteria. It's like um, dogs and cats living together. Yeah, but I think it has it has a definite um, uh, gender specific connotation to it from over the years. Like women were supposedly very hysterical. hysterical. So the the idea of diagnosing somebody as hysterical under any circumstances is kind of uh, tantamount to panning, uh, panning them on the head. Yeah, here, nice lady. You're, right. You're just a little hysterical. You just go calm down and bake something. Right. Yeah. Stop being crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, mass psychogenic disorder instead is just kind of like, whoa, your brain just did something pretty neat. Yeah. And that is the case for mass psychogenic disorder, if you ask me. Um, in this article, Chuck, uh, written by Jacob Silverman, Jeopardy champion. Yeah, well, he, yeah. Yeah, he won on Jeopardy. That makes him a champion, right? Yeah, I think so. He wasn't like the, the ultimate champion, but he won a couple of episodes. Right, which is why they should have a word for, a su- I guess, like, the champion is like the one who won it all. Ken Jennings. Yeah, or um, Watson. Who's that? The IBM computer. Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> sure. So Jeopardy winner Jacob Silverman wrote this article mm-hmm. years back, and he did a pretty great job of citing a uh, contemporary outbreak 
of mass psychogenic disorder that had been going on around that time down in Mexico, down Mexico way in Chalco, Mexico, at a, a boarding school there. Uh, it apparently was a girls' boarding school, mm-hmm. and the girls that went to school there were ages 12 to 17, and all of a sudden, they started, uh, well, there was an outbreak. Yeah. A weird outbreak. There was vomiting, I believe, trouble walking. Um, there was fever. Yeah. That's weird. Nausea. And so the the people running this boarding school were like, um, what's going on? This is not good. Yeah. Uh, and they had no idea. The girls went on Christmas break for 10 days, came back, and the thing just took off again like wildfire. Yeah, 600 of the 3,600 girls um, showed these symptoms, and nobody could figure it out. Um, they did a lot of tests. They brought in people to, like, check out the facilities. and Because, yeah. as you'll see, there's a trend there. Um, you know, here in the West, they start to blame it usually on, um, like, environmental poisoning of some kind. Right. Um, you know, there's some sort of toxin sure. present that has poisoned everybody. But they didn't find anything there. And eventually, um, they said this is, uh, what do you call it? Psychosomatic? Uh, Mass psychogenic disorder. Okay. Mass psychogenic disorder. But no, that is one of the one of the names. It's mass psychogenic disorder, collective hysteria, mass hysteria, or mass psychosomatic reaction. Yeah. They're all saying the same thing. They are. Which They're- is you're not... Well, I was about to say you're not really sick, but that is not exactly true because that's one thing that differentiates this from something that's just in your head is you actually do manifest physical symptoms. Right, yeah. There's this article written by a MD named Timothy F. Jones from the Tennessee Department of Health way back in the heady days of 2000, the year 2000, the future. Wow. Um, And he writes that you, if you are experiencing mass psychogenic disorder, it is not just in your head that the symptoms that you have are actually very real. Even though there's no toxic cause, they couldn't find some sort of environmental poisoning or anything like that, the symptoms are extremely real. Yeah. It's just psychosomatic. It's just basically the brain has been tricked into causing this response. Yeah, and this has happened. um, They've documented about 80 cases throughout history, and apparently the National Institutes of Health uh, gets about two cases per week uh, reported. But um, which is, I mean, like that's that's way more yeah common than than you would think, you know? Yeah, I would think there'd be more than eighty because I mean these have happened. If you go back and look at, I mean, there's all sorts of crazy lists on the internet about these cases that date back to like the 14th century. Medieval dancing mania was one of them. Yeah, the dancing plague. Yeah, yeah, that's in there. Uh, the Salem witchcraft trials. Sure. Or that's... the Salem witchcraft. I guess what led to the trials was um supposedly attributed to this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, One weird thing about this condition is more times than not, it uh, affects females. Yeah. And young females, even more specifically, teenagers or even younger. Which is, as far as it goes right now, inexplicable. Um, And it's kind of a prickly issue, you know? Like, again, you kind of come back to the idea of calling it hysteria. Yeah. You know, the fact that it does tend to afflict women or girls more than than boys um, is apparently one means of diagnosing um, psychogenic disorder, mass psychogenic disorder. Yeah, that's disorder. like one of the first things they'll say is like all this, this sickness is happening in this place, this school, wherever, and the doctor will say, is it a bunch of girls? Yeah. And then that will 
clue them in that, hey, this might be what we're dealing with here. And the, But the problem is, is no one has any idea why. And there have been explanations of things like, um, <clears throat> I guess, girls, this is, this is girls' culturally acceptable outlet for raging against the patriarchy. Sure. E- even if they don't necessarily feel that that's what they're doing, this is their... There, uh, this is the symptoms of that. That's one. Yeah, uh, I thought this was a pretty interesting part. What article was that from? Slate. Uh, there was, uh, yeah, one called um, "Mass Hysteria in Upstate New York" by Ruth Graham was on Slate. That was a good one. It was a really good one. And we'll get to that case in a sec. But um, th- I thought it was pretty interesting. In one part, it says, um, and this is a quote from someone writing about something, and said, "In form, if not in conscious intent, it is to protest the sexual pr- repressiveness." Rigid double standard of female teen culture. Um, but they were writing about Beatlemania. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's sort of has a similar vibe of uh, young ladies being repressed, um, not having an outlet. And so they see the Beatles and they go berserk. Right. And faint and cry and scream. Yeah. Uh, collectively. Whereas boys, they're more prone to just act out if they're not feeling good. Girls are trained to keep things inward. And they also point out that uh, ladies and and young ladies are more prone to seek a doctor's help for something. Uh, They say that may account for the bias right there. Right. Like guys just won't go to the doctor. Exactly. You have to be careful, though, in in just diagnosing mass psychogenic disorder. You physicians out there who are listening that encounter a case like this. it, just by basing it on the fact that it, it is affecting more girls than boys because sure. there's at least one case in Great Britain where uh, I think girls were afflicted by more than half, more than double the number of girls were afflicted by this, and it turned out that there were tainted cucumbers being served in, in the lunchroom. Yeah, and, and everyone knows boys hate cucumbers. And so, I mean, this so is... they didn't eat anything. Right. But this is one of the issues with dealing with um, mass psychogenic disorder and that... It looks and acts a lot like some sort of weird epidemic. That basically it looks like uh, either a um, something like bioterrorism, yeah, uh, a rapidly spreading affection infection, or affection if it's sure. Beatlemania, <laughs> yeah, and then acute toxic exposure. Uh-huh. That's what it looks like. It's like one person gets sick. This is your index case, yeah, and all of a sudden, everyone around them suddenly has the same symptoms. Yeah, and it's, like you said, it's super dangerous to just dismiss that as, oh, it's all in your head, silly little ladies. Uh, You can't do that because what if it is something for real? Uh, But it's also a double-edged sword, as that doctor pointed out. Um, You start ordering batteries of tests, and it it can go both ways. It can... um, What the old saying is, if you order enough tests, you're going to find something. Right. So it can fuel that fire... But you also can't not run any tests and just dismiss it. Uh, so it's a very fine line that physicians walk uh, when dealing with stuff like this, for sure. Indeed. Apparently, um, study of mass psychogenic disorder has found that <clears throat> it's more prevalent in isolated communities yeah. and in situations where um, there are highly rigid, formalized, structured Rules like a Catholic school in Mexico, exactly. Yeah, um, or again, um, Salem, Massachusetts, in the 17th century. Yeah, you know, um, and apparently between 1973 and 1993, half of all the outbreaks of psychogenic or psychogenic illness took place in schools. Oh uh, yeah. So that that's 
possibly in part by due to kids being susceptible to it more. Right. Um, but also because of that that rigid, formalized structure. Yeah, and there's also usually a top-down effect. Like it'll start with a teacher or an older student, and then the younger students follow suit, which if you're talking influence, uh, would make sense for sure. There was one very famous case. Um, apparently there's not very many actual academic studies on this. Yeah. But there's one that came out of the New England Journal of Medicine Yeah. Um, that – that described a case in 1998 in Tennessee where a teacher noticed um, some weird gas odor, a gassy odor. Yeah. Uh, it, like the chemical kind. Yeah, not like the guy on the front row tooted. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she apparently started suffering symptoms. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, like 180 students and yeah. teachers had to go to the emergency room. The school was shut down for two weeks they did all this environmental testing, couldn't find anything, yeah. and finally traced it back to um, psychogenic, a mass psychogenic disorder. That, yeah. That's what did it. And, and then what, everyone, in mo- most of these cases, we should point out, everyone starts feeling better. Yes. Like in Mexico and then the school in Tennessee, it's, it, it, it's not like they went on to die or anything. Yeah. So in the school in Mexico... The these girls were at a boarding school. Yeah, they were only allowed to see their parents. I think like three times a year. Yeah, they couldn't even call. It's like it sounds more like a prison. Right. <laughs> no phone calls. School. They were allowed letters. When they went home, immediately their symptoms cleared up. Yeah. The problem is that, that doesn't automatically say, oh well, it's obviously mass psychogenic disorder. It could be an environmental right. toxin that they are being exposed to still. Right. Uh, at the school, and we're we're removed from. But I think the the um, Definite prognosis is mass psychogenic disorder in this case. That's right. So the nocebo effect, we talked about that in what? The placebo effect. Oh, <laughs> well, that makes sense. Yeah. I was trying to be more clever. thought we were more clever than that. No. Uh, uh, nocebo, I think we said in that other podcast too, is Latin for I shall harm. And that's basically, uh, whereas you take a placebo thinking it's going to help you out, and it does help you out mm-hmm. uh, because the mind is powerful, the nocebo effect is thinking something bad will result. Like, my teacher's getting sick. I think I feel a little sick, too. Right. And then, oh, wait, my neighbor's feeling a little sick. I think I'm feeling a little sick, too. Or this this drug trial that I'm on. I've, I was told that I could possibly get some sort of gastrointestinal distress. <laughs> yeah. And even though I've been given a sugar pill, right. I'm now going, <laughs> yeah, because of my mind, because of the nocebo effect. Uh, there was a famous uh, experiment or case from 1886 where there was a woman who had a rose allergy, and they showed her an artificial rose, and she began to, I guess it was convincing, mm-hmm. and she began to have her allergic reaction, and they said, aha, it's fake, and you're faking. And uh, she said, oh, well, I think I'm feeling better now. And supposedly, that cured her of her real allergy to ro- real roses. Right. 
I couldn't find a lot to back that up, but is it? It is a story. Yeah. Well, no. It's a. I mean, it was in. Uh, I can't remember the journal, but it oh, was it like, really was. Oh, yeah, it was a real deal okay. thing. And um, I don't. I didn't get to the bottom of why they presented this woman with uh, a fake rose or whatever, but they definitely did, and this definitely happened. Yeah. And um, the the even the the author of the study was saying like. This woman, she wasn't faking. Right. It was like she she had real symptoms. Sure. Hives are hives. Exactly. You can see those. Um, I think they call it like a rose cold or something like that. <laughs> you can get, you know, st- stuffy. Yeah. Your eyes are watering. Your, um, your nose is running. That kind of thing. And what's interesting is some researchers have studied the nocebo effect, and they basically is, have isolated this, this chemical that gets released when the nocebo effects going on. And again, we should say it's not just um, making your nose runny or releasing histamines yeah. or anything like that. It's pain too. Like you can, you can experience pain even though nothing's there to give you pain right? just because of the nocebo effect. What they found was a, um, a I guess, a, a hormone, I believe. Are you ready? I'm going to try this one. Uh, cholecystokinin. That sounds great. Thanks, man. I haven't looked at the word, but it sounds right. Cholecystokinin. Yeah. Um, Do you see it now? Oh, yeah. That's totally right. I totally did. So it's a hormone, right? And it gets released, and it actually um, helps you experience pain. Uh So it's a nasty little hormone. Yeah. But they found in testing with the, the nocebo effect that if you block this, you can also block the nocebo effect. So that proves two things. Does that block pain, though? Yes. Like your pain receptors? Yes. So does that mean if you slam your hand in a door, you won't feel it? If you can block this. Wow. Yes. So um, if you can block cholecystokinin. Right. Uh, it, it, yes, it will keep you from um, hypersensitivity to pain, I believe. Yeah. And this guy named uh, Fabrizio Benedetti, mm-hmm. who I think was also in The Strokes, back in 1997. There was a Fabrizio, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he... Uh, he was testing out the nocebo effect and found that if he told people that he was giving them an injection, which is a, it's a pretty cruel test, but effective. Yeah. These post-op people who had just come out of surgery mm-hmm. uh, were given an injection and told, this injection is going to increase your pain in 30 minutes. I'm sorry, we have to give it to you. It's part of the procedure. Right. <laughs> he gave uh, some people an injection of saline, uh-huh. and they reported an increase in pain. And they all went behind the, the two-way mirror and laughed. Right. Yeah. They're like, what a chump. <laughs> White, watch. Look at him 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And then they gave somebody, like the other group, the control group, uh, a chemical, an injection that blocks that pain. But they were told that it was going to increase their pain. Right. But they were given a chemical that blocks uh, cholecystokinin, uh-huh. and the nocebo effect didn't take place. They didn't in- report an increase in pain. Even though they were told they would. Yes. Wow. So they, so this guy's saying, like, the nocebo effect is real. Yeah. Like, when, when they say it's not just in your head, sure. it, you're experiencing the same thing as if you were experiencing somebody stabbing you. Well, what it is real, you know? That's when you have to start asking yourself those deep philosophical questions. Right. Interesting. Um, There's uh, another case that's... Have you ever seen the movie Safe, the Todd Haynes movie with Julianne Moore? No. It's from like uh, the mid-90s, and she played a lady that um, started to have environmental sickness um, just in the air, and she's got sort of like increasingly... um, 
crazy as the movie went on as far as scrubbing things and locking herself in her house and making her house a clean environment. Sounds great. Yeah, it was good. And um, there's there's a, a true story, though, of a lady in uh, London um, named Debbie Bird. She's a health spa manager mm-hmm. that says that she's allergic to uh, EMF, electromagnetic fields. And it's an actual thing now. You know, there's more than her claiming it's called ES, electromagnetic sensitivity, where she has basically transformed her house. She painted it black. Uh, she said she's allergic to computers, cell phones, microwaves. She had her house rewired uh, to make it basically EMF-free. Uh, she and her husband sleep under a silver-plated mosquito net to keep out radio waves and covered all her windows with protective films, and uh, she said she's feeling a lot better now. So I saw that ES, electromagnetic yeah. sensitivity, that if you expose somebody to a an electromagnetic field, and then just tell them that you are and don't, yeah. they have the same reaction, which yeah. would suggest that it's it's nocebo. Well, it's super fascinating because you see cases like this from that to like gluten sensitivity mm-hmm. becoming a big thing now. And people, some people contend that, well, it's maybe a collective hysteria going on. And yeah. if you think you're going to be sensitive to gluten, then you're going to be sensitive to things that contain gluten. And I'm not saying that, people, because that's a very hot topic. Sure it is. But... um. Some people have claimed that. <laughs> well, we'll talk a little bit more about things that exacerbate the uh, mass psychogenic disorder and the nocebo effect right after this. Stuff you should Stuff you should so, Chuck, back in 2007 in New Zealand, yeah. uh, a drug called uh, L-troxin. It was a pretty widespread drug in, in New Zealand. It's a hormone replacement drug. Uh-huh. And it was the only one that the government would pay for. So most people who were on this hormone replacement therapy were using L-troxin. And it had been that way for, like, decades. Yeah. It was just an established drug. GlaxoSmithKline... What was it for, though? Hormone replacement. Oh, oh okay. GlaxoSmithKline, I think just those. There's no welcome involved. Uh-huh. Um, changed just the like the outer, the inert qualities of it, like the shape of the pill, the color. Yeah. Um, and I think that's about it. But the the active ingredient was exactly the same in 2007. Uh, and when they released it, all of a sudden, some reports of bad side effects were starting to trickle in. And the government was like, wait, what's going on here? It got a little bit of media attention and more reports started trickling in. Yeah. And then the media attention grew, and the reports grew and grew, and apparently the reporting of adverse effects of L-troxin mm-hmm. increased 2,000-fold in a year and a half. Because of the look of the pill. Because of the look of the pill. Yeah. They, they went back and studied this, and they found that in areas where there was more reporting about these adverse effects being reported for L-troxin, uh-huh. the more adverse effects were being reported in that area. And that kind of reveals one of the um, risk factors for uh, mass psychogenic disorder is the media. It's yeah. actually spread through the media most easily. Yeah, I, they have a point, though. I mean, um, I know in this article, too, it points out that uh, pills that are blue and green are usually associated with mm-hmm. drowsiness. Yeah, uh, Pills that are orange or yellow 
or not. And uh, I don't know if that's why they market it that way or if it's the opposite is we just see it that way because of products like NyQuil and DayQuil. Right. But the one that makes you sleepy is green and blue and the one that keeps you awake or not keep you awake but doesn't make you drowsy is orange. I thought about it. I think, I mean, what do you associate with like daytime, sunrise, yellow, orange, red? It totally makes sense. What do you associate with nighttime? Like something tranquil, like blue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Scotch, scotch (laughs) amber. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you think of, that's what I, I, I think it came from, I think the pills came after the association rather than the other way around. Yeah. I think I even, like when I get a prescription for something, when I see the pill, I make a judgment on it before I've even had it, just by saying, "Wow, look at that thing!" Or it's that, heavy. That, yeah, that's a horse pill, or that's a capsule with, uh, you know, powdery stuff inside. That's right. different than the chalky one. It's you. I think you just make an association. I don't think I have any preconceived notions on what a larger pill will do to me, right? Or a capsule will do to me, uh, other than a tablet. But uh, I think it's interesting, though, how you make these judgment calls. But without even thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, totally. You know? I mean, like, you you're, you probably don't sit there and look at a pill in your hand. You just take it and just make some sort of um, almost unconscious judgments about it. Yeah, it may remind you of another pill that helped you that you're not even remembering. Exactly. So that would be placebo. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Nocebo effect. Not great. Poses, no, and it poses a lot of problems. For instance, it, uh, there was a study, I think, in the 90s that found that women who believed that they were prone to heart disease were four times likelier to die yeah. of heart disease than women who didn't believe they were prone to it, even though they had all the exact same risk factors, basically the same risk risk factors. There was nothing differentiating these women aside from a belief that they were going to die from heart disease or a, a belief that they weren't. Yeah. And that led to a four-time, four-fold increase in, in deaths yeah. from that. Just basically from a belief is what it suggests. Yeah, we well, it's sort of like the, the I know it's kind of cheesy, but the PMA, the positive mental attitude. Mm-hmm. I think we've all know someone who walks around saying, oh, so-and-so's sick. Oh, I know I'm going to get it. I just right. know I'm going to get sick. Or, you know, I just know I'm going to get cancer because it runs in my family. That I think that has an effect on things. I, I have to agree. I know some of our more skeptical listeners will, are pulling their hair out right now, but... I totally agree with you. Yeah. When we did our show in Toronto, uh, on the way back, uh, you, me, and I flew out of Buffalo. Uh-huh. And I was feeling a little down, but like at the point where I feel like you can talk yourself into staying healthy. Yeah, yeah. Positive mental attitude, I guess sure. is what you call it. PMA. But we were leaving right at about dusk, and the sun was just beaming through the windows and illuminating every single oh, no. <laughs> microbe, <laughs> visible microbe in the air. Yeah. And I could see them like <laughs> just going into my nose and my mouth. And I'm like, oh no, I couldn't stop. Like I couldn't, I was like, I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to get sick. And man, did I ever get sick. Yeah. But I noticed that right when we took off and no, you know what it was? Somebody shut one of their, um, their uh, window covers. Yeah. Yeah. The shade. Shade, uh-huh. exactly, is the word that I was looking for. <laughs> uh, somebody shut their shade, and I couldn't see it anymore, and I immediately started to feel less symptomatic. Wow. Immediately. It was like turning off a light. Yeah. And I still got sick, but I was just drowning in, in basically what my brain was interpreting as like being assaulted by foreign invaders, which I am all the time, sure. but I normally can't see them. Yeah, well, I've done, I do that all the time when I open my uh, the curtains in, in the bedroom, and 
I'll see it in the morning. I'll see that stuff in the air, and I just think, oh, man, that's what I'm walking around? Right. Breathing in Breathing, yeah. Dog hair and cat hair and Emily hair. So <laughs> your lungs are just chock full of it. So one of the one of the problems this poses, Chuck, for physicians is that we expect doctors or we want doctors to be transparent, to not lie to us. Yeah, we've talked a lot about this lately, I feel like. Yeah, you know? we've talked a lot about diseases. Some of yeah. our um, hypochondriac listeners have been like, please <laughs> stop, stop talking about diseases because <laughs> now I've got morgulons. Right. <laughs> I'm going to have like some sort of uh, toxic exposure. Yeah. Toxoplasmosis. Yep. Um, and then very soon leprosy. Spoiler. So uh, the the problem is, is if you tell somebody that's going into surgery, hey, by the way, um, you know, you you might have trouble walking. Yeah. You might feel nauseous for the next six months. You Like all this stuff that could be associated with, which we demand from our doctors. Yeah. It's been shown that if you are fearful or in despair going into surgery, that's associated with longer healing times and a higher risk of post-operative infection. Yeah. Right? So if you have the nocebo effect where doctors are saying, Okay, if I tell somebody, and it's been proven time after time, yeah. that in drug trials, people who are still are given placebo will drop out of drug trials because they're experiencing these negative side effects, uh-huh. even though they're given the sugar pill. Right. So if you're a doctor and you, you know that you are telling somebody something that ultimately may end up harming them, and yet you've sworn an oath to do no harm, you've got a conundrum going on right now. Yeah. And that's what the nocebo effect poses. It's the problem the nocebo effect poses for modern physicians. Like, how much should they tell you? If, if right. you're going to tell somebody that they're going to feel nauseous for six months, even though they probably won't, yeah. should you tell them? And give them a chance to to basically have the psychosomatic yeah. symptom. Or tell them they're going to feel great. Well, that's another one. Somebody says the solution to this is just frame it differently. Right. Like, don't say there's a chance you're going to have um, nausea for six months. Say half of a percent of patients who go through the same procedure that you're about to go through have nausea for six months. 99.5% don't. Right. You're giving them the same information. It's just framed more positively. Yeah. And uh, that one doctor who wrote the article on collective hysteria said um, what he recommends is not naming uh, the illness. Yeah. He said that can help out um, because as soon as you give something a name, then it just instantly, you know, you have something you can call it and everyone's calling it that or the media picks up on it. Right. And it's a thing. Yeah, and that's actually again one of the one of the risk factors in the spread of mass psychogenic illness is the larger the response, the emergency medical response to it. Yeah. And then hence the larger the media response to it, the larger the outbreak tends to be. It's called line of sight exposure. Yeah. Just knowing somebody is sick or seeing somebody sick can give you the same symptoms. I'm sure if you see a news story that all the other news agencies are running that says uh there's been some uh, weird chemical leak in the air in Atlanta. Mm. Uh, people are going to start walking around and coughing right? and saying, hey, uh, I'm not feeling so good. I have a bitter <laughs> taste in my mouth. There's microbes everywhere. Well, here's a case uh, from that article you sent that I think is super fascinating, uh, the one in upstate New York. Yeah. Because it is not a rash or um, a cough or nausea. It is Tourette syndrome. A 16-year-old um, young lady named Lori Bronwell 
what year was this? A couple of years ago? Yeah, not too long ago. I think 2012. Um, and Corinth, New York um, was at her school's homecoming dance and lost consciousness. Um, this is she, after she, she had oh, headbanged yeah. at a concert. Sorry, man. I thought you were going to leave out like <laughs> the best part. Yeah, she was headbanging at a concert. I wish I knew what concert that was. So Me bad. too. I didn't find it anywhere. Uh, apparently passed out there and had passing outfits. Uh, involuntary twitching and clapping started, twisting her hair, fluttering her fingers. Uh, hey, hey, hey! Starting stuff like that. Yeah. And the doctor said, you know what? You've got Tourette's syndrome. So Tourette's syndrome is is uh, we've had a podcast on it. It's that was a real a great thing. One. It's yeah. not psychosomatic. Yeah. Um, but uh, since that time, fourteen other students, along with her, thirteen girls and one boy, started exhibiting at Leroy Junior High School. I'm sorry, Junior Senior High School uh-huh. started coming down with Tourette's. Right, which is not contagious. It is not contagious at all. Um, Aaron Brockovich got on the case. Um, famous environmental activist, and she said, no, I think this has got to do with this train derailment from 1970 that dumped cyanide all over this town. Right. Um, and I didn't see where they found any uh, legitimate effects. Right. It, again, that's the confounding thing about mass psychogenic disorder is that it is still possible that there is some weird toxin in the environment that is causing this. Like, Maybe there was exposure to cyanide that got in these people's brains and all gave them Tourette. And if you stand back and look at it, you're like, Tourette syndrome isn't contagious. That doesn't mean that you can't all come down with Tourette syndrome from exposure to a toxin. It's just still, it's this X factor that's out there that you can't just necessarily rule out with confidence. Yeah, and I believe in that case, too, um, those 14 students didn't end up with Tourette syndrome. That was a good episode, man. Love Tourette syndrome one. Yeah, that's an oldie. Yeah, oldie but a goodie. And it all came from headbanging. That's how it started. That mess at a Nickelback show. <laughs> yeah, because Corinth is near Canada. Canada doesn't let Nickelback out any longer. Oh, really? Are they caged in there? Yeah. Nice. Uh, there's another case of the toxic lady. Did you hear this one? In Riverside, California, a woman named Gloria Ramirez. Um, yeah. She was dubbed the toxic lady in 1994. Uh, she had cervical cancer and was being treated, and all the medical staff started to get sick that was treating her. Um, this sounds gross, but they said her body exuded a garlicky, fruity smell, mm-hmm. and her blood had uh, flecks of what looked like paper, um, which sounds kind of like Morgulons, actually. Nice. You like that? Yeah. Um, and they said that... M- most of the people that got sick while treating her were women, uh, more women than men. And they all took a uh, blood test and came back normal. And the health department said mass hysteria. So that's funny because I looked, I remembered that story and I yeah. was like, I wonder if that was mass hysteria. And I looked it up and I found that, no, it was an environmental toxin. Oh, it was? That's what I found. So they called it mass hysteria at the time and then later found out? I think like a year or two later, she was ah. using some sort of salve or something on her skin and they think that it interacted with her biochemistry and really did produce tox- a toxic gas. She said it may be this fruit garlic salve. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's interacting badly with my pancreas. Oh, well, uh, 
this list needs to be updated. That, that dude, <laughs> that is a fascinating case. It is. Like, and people got really sick from that. I think I remember hearing about that too. Yeah. Well, I'm glad they found a real cause in that case. From what I understand, but that's an, that's that's the point. Like, right. You can say, well, obviously, there's women were more affected than men. Yeah. Right. Well, is that because there's more women in the nursing profession and there were more nurses in the room? Yeah, maybe. There's a lot of different things you have to take into account before you just write it off. Sometimes it is real, like sick building syndrome. Yeah. That's a tough one because in after the uh, OPEC oil embargo. Uh-huh. Apparently, people started designing buildings to be more airtight. So your ventilation ventilation system was really important. Yeah. And these buildings haven't aged necessarily very well. So the ventilation system is not doing what it's supposed to any longer. And so they think possibly that's leading to what we know as sick building syndrome, which is malaise. It's when you don't feel good when you go to work. Exactly. <laughs> which is everybody every But day. some studies have found like, no, that is the better predictor of sick building syndrome. Yeah. Is job stress or job dissatisfaction. Yeah. Um, if you have a building full of people who don't like their jobs, you're going to have a building full of people with sick building syndrome. But if you go on to, say, like a, a local government's website or whatever and you look at sick building syndrome, it's a, it's treated as a real thing. Yeah. Well, it definitely affects your gastrointestinal like stress does. Well, also, apparently it can um, set off bouts of asthma. Yeah. Um, which is another reason why they think it might have something to do with like volatile organic compounds in the ventilation sure. system or new carpeting, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Off-gassing, man. You, you smell that stuff when you open up a new product, right? Yeah. There's also the dancing plague, which we mentioned briefly. Tell me about it. Uh, Frau Trophia, uh, July 14th, 1518, went out on the streets of Strasbourg, France, and started dancing, even though there was no music, and dancing like a maniac for three straight days, and all these <laughs> well, people started dancing with her, yeah. saying this is a good time. Um, said within a month, 100 people were uh, dancing with her and couldn't stop, and uh, hyperventilating, hallucinating, some dropped dead of heart attack and stroke and exhaustion. And the uh, authority said, let's just hire a band and let them dan- dance it out because <laughs> yeah. they've got the hot blood is what they called it. All right. <laughs> and so they did. And um, a lot of people died as a result. It said 400 people in the end were struck. Uh, I don't think they died, but were dancers. Right. And then it just stopped. And that's one they blame. A lot of people blame on ergot poisoning which we've mentioned before. I always go with ergot poisoning. Yeah, back They're then. Like, Those people are clearly <laughs> tripping on something. They got the hot blood. But th- what it sounds like you just described is basically how Tom Hanks invented jogging in the 70s. Jogging? Yeah. Oh, yeah? yeah. <laughs> he just started running and people started following him. <laughs> I, I wish that part had been cut out of that movie. Oh, really? Yeah, I thought that it was a weird thing that should have been on the editing room floor. <laughs> it really kind of derailed things for a while for me. Yeah. I don't think that movie's aged well, though. Uh, I haven't seen him other people say, though, that it was uh, Sydenham's chorea, a disorder uh, linked to strep throat and rheumatic fever that causes dance-like twitches. Um, and then, of course, modern medical historians say it was mass psychosis. I would go with that one. Yeah, and but I mean, back then it made more sense, though, <clears throat> when during the Salem witch trials and before they knew anything about medicine and you right. could just say you got the hot blood or you're having the fits, like... These or, modern or the cases, devils possessed you? Yeah, exactly. These modern cases are the ones that really freak me out because so much is explainable now. Well, here's the thing, though, Chuck. We've always explained it with something that comes easily to mind. So back in the day before science, 
in medicine, yeah. it was the devil possessing you. Yeah. And don't think that people weren't freaked out when they thought that the devil was there in oh, town sure. possessing yeah. people in the same way that, you know, you're freaked out by the idea that it's cyanide in the soil yeah. from a train derailment from 1970. Or beetle mania. It's just exactly. Yeah. Which is the deadliest of all the manias. <laughs> but it's just as real. Yeah. To the experiencer. And That's it right. all comes down to people just basically being sick of the establishment and letting loose for a while. Don't want to go to work. Nice. So I'll dance. You got anything else? Uh, no, sir. Uh, if you want to know more about collective hysteria, which is the name of this article, type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com and it will bring it up. And I said search bar, which means it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this um, episode on grief. We got a lot of great feedback and that continue, uh, they continue to roll in. Yeah. Hey guys, just stumbled upon your podcast through my TuneIn Radio app. Uh, I guess that's a mini plug. Mm-hmm. We're available there now. Yeah. Um, I've devoured almost all of uh, the 600 plus shows. I may be a new listener, but I'm already a lifelong fan. So why I'm writing in, guys, is I lost my twin sister back in 2010. Uh, it was a rough time because as a fraternal twin, me being the boy, I looked at her not only as a sister, but as a mother and friend too. Long story short, I wanted to comment on the grief show some time ago. I've dealt with my grief uh, through my artwork. Uh, I'm a small town artist from Johnson City, Tennessee, and I rarely can get noticed or any attention with my art. I wanted to share my new piece I've just finished uh, after listening to how comic books work. I'm a huge fan of Marvel Comics, and I hope you both enjoy this. And he sent this really cool, I think it was like every member of the Marvel Universe had to be in this picture that he did. I didn't see that one. It's really, really neat. Just jam-packed full of uh, Marvel comic heroes and villains. Um, so Josh and Chuck, thanks for the inspiration, laughs, and getting through every day at the office. Uh, P.S. My twin Jessica passed away from epilepsy, actually, a condition called SUDEP, Sudden Unexplained Death of Epilepsy. My mother is trying to raise awareness because November is Epilepsy Awareness Month. So if you guys wouldn't mind mentioning this on the show, she would be so happy for that. Yeah. Also, an epilepsy show would be cool, too. Um, not a lot is discussed about it. And that is Jason Flack. And Jason, I uh, wrote you back. That is heartbreaking about your twin sister. Yeah, it is. Very sorry to hear that. Um, and we will definitely do a show on epilepsy. And since this is November, though, uh, people should go out and find out what they can during National Epilepsy Month. Yeah. And we'll we we'll follow up with the show. Yeah. I don't know if it'll be in November, but we'll get to that one for sure. Yeah. And thanks for that piece of art. And if anyone's interested in a great comic book artist from Johnson City, Tennessee, do a lot worse than Jason Flack. Jason, thank you very much for sharing that with everybody. That means a lot to us. Uh, If you want to share with us and all of our listeners out there, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash stuff you should know. You can send us an email with attached artwork to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.